Hello, everyone, and welcome to Forrester CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, and I am joined again by return guests Adele Sage and Amanda Brax from our Customer Experience Council. Welcome back. Thanks for having us. Yes, back. thank you. So we um, had such a good conversation last time. We wanted to chat with you again. Uh, listeners will remember we picked their brains about um, the membership and really trying to understand what what type of resources we provide to. Uh, new members, uh, sort of newbies to customer experience and more experienced folks and and uh, everything in between. Um, this time, wanted to talk to you about, uh, since on CXCast, we like to highlight a report each week and and talk to the analysts and uh, ask them some questions. What are What is the report, one or two reports that you like to share with members most often? Is there sort of like the, the one that you're always sending off to them? I mean, come on, Sam. There's so much good research at Forrester. I think that's an impossible question. You read my line. I fed you perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> we um, we send so many more than one or two reports to our members that we, we uh, you know, Manz and I talked about this and, and found it to be an impossible task. So instead, we thought about the types of reports that we send most often to our members, and we broke it down into a couple of kinds of reports. Um, the most popular is probably the how-to reports, mm. right? We have a group of people who are, you know, doing customer experience stuff yeah. all the time, and they just want to know, how do I do it better? Yeah. And the reports that you guys write are, are you know, that, that explain how to do something are among the most helpful. We also yeah. um, get, uh, we send a lot that, are, that have real-life examples mm-hmm. and a lot of detail about how particular companies have approached a problem and solved it. Those are helpful. Again, you know, even though they're, they, in, a, in a sense, they're sort of a how-to as well yeah. um, with, with one big example. Uh, and then we also often send the future-looking reports because these are folks who really need to stay ahead of the game mm. and uh, and and want to you know want to know what's coming up before everybody else knows what's coming up. Okay, great. So and how to then is you know if we're thinking of a voice of a customer program, it's not describing what a voice of a customer program is and why you need one. We'll take that as given that these people in your membership already is like yeah 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 I got it I right. know that or we even have one most of them probably do. How do I make it better? How do I implement? What are the best practices maybe? And how do I implement them here? Is that exactly. fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would think of this as the reports that, that you wrote around culture change and the seven mm. steps to sustain, sustain a customer-centric culture, the report that Tony just came out with around how to assess quality, this quality of journey, journey maps, maps. Yeah, good point. As well as the one that Rick Parrish just came out with, with how to, a step-by-step guide to ecosystem mapping because it's not only helpful just for our members, but also for them to take back with their team yeah. because they may be familiar with customer experience, but how do they educate their team and the rest of the organization? And it's almost a tool that they can use and sit down and say, hey, so look, it's, you know, with this culture change, if we don't get executive buy-in, how we're not going to be able to effectively sustain right. a culture. So the, these uh, these reports are really helpful in terms of giving our members that framework to be able to execute. Yeah, it's a good bringing up my my report. It reminds me of when I sort of realized I had to write that report because I've been writing research around culture, describing different aspects or elements of customer centricity in an organization's culture. And I was sort of getting these questions like, yeah, but but what, how did they do that? Like, how did they get that in their company? And, and I was realizing I haven't answered the most important question here, which is for companies that aren't customer-centric, and most aren't, it's not they, they can kind of guess what it looks like when you are customer-centric. It's that step two in the middle of 
you know, how do we do this that you, you have to describe and explain and, and lay out in incredible detail. So that this makes sense. As, as you're saying it, I'm realizing, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that process of realizing I had left out a huge chunk of the explanation for how you get a customer-centered culture. Well, and I had several members for whom that report was really a light bulb moment. Right. You know, you, you were so specific that at a certain point you have to have executive buy-in or don't bother. Like, you're not going to succeed. Right. And for them, you know, that that really hit home and they realized that they had to spend more time worrying about that because otherwise they wouldn't succeed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember a few of those conversations. They said, oh, this, this actually makes it a lot easier for me. I can stop worrying about these other things until I knock this one out. Exactly. Um, okay, good. So that makes sense about the how-to reports. Um, and you, you referenced some great examples there, um, not just my own research of Tony's and, and Rick's too. And, and I was thinking... As you were saying that, I was thinking of Tony's report because um, there's so much grit in that report about how you do evaluate your journey maps. And I think he he does a really good job of pivoting from an it depends answer, which is our, you know, we always joke about the cop-out analyst or consultant answer, depends on what you're using the journey map for, to then say, and here are a few different uses that are very common and how you would measure then your your quality. So he he doesn't just stop with it depends, right? That can be the first sentence in a paragraph that you complete an answer. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes as analysts, we're guilty of making it the only sentence we'll give you. Um, so well, I thought Tony did a great job of that. The, the nice thing for us on the council is also that those how-to reports are often great uh, workshops for our mm -hmm. members at our mm -hmm. in-person meetings. Mm -hmm. So you did a great one on culture this fall. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had uh, analysts come and lead them about journey mapping mm -hmm. and just knowing that there's kind of a, a you know, a, a report that's a Bible to follow for that process makes it easier for everybody. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. So then talk a little bit more about the real life example reports, maybe the case studies. Because um, sometimes... You know, and again, this is getting inside baseball of Forrester, but when I think about writing them, I just worry that it, it you know, gets too specific um, or it's, you know, only relevant if you feel that your business model or your, you know, industry is, is similar enough to the company being described. Is that is that ever an issue or is, is it really nice to have all the detail? I mean, I think it can go either way. Yeah. I'll say it depends. <laughs> um, so one of one of the reports, for example, that I would put in this category is the report that TJ Kitt just wrote about um, about B two B team structure, mm, mm -hmm. and I, that one happens to have a couple of our council members in it. So for that reason, we we also love it. <laughs> uh, but um, but what's nice is it's very specific, and our B two B members are hungry for that kind of yeah. content specific to B two B because yes, there's a lot of content that is applicable, whether it's B2C or B2B or, or you know, or somewhere in between. Um, but having B2B content is something that's incredibly helpful for them. And yeah. the detail that's in a report like that about, you know, how other companies are actually structured is, um, is exactly what they want to see. Yeah. That's a good point, too. Back to your, the earlier point you were making about showing that to their colleagues. And it, I, I've seen that with B2B companies in particular, but in a lot of industries where they're you know, they get pushback. Well, you know, you can't generalize from USAA or Southwest or whatever the example is. It's harder when it is a company that's just like you. And so they're saying, right. here's the B2B companies who are doing this. Right. You, we can't dismiss this example or this best practice. They're too similar to us for to, to rule it out. Right? Well, I would also say that a lot of our members understand that they're 
their companies aren't being compared to their, or their customers aren't comparing them to their competitors. They're comparing them to the Amazons and the Ubers of the mm, world. Yeah. So having those case studies is helpful to see where their, where expectations of, of customers are being set and what mm. customers are demanding in the marketplace. And also that it gives them the leverage to be able to tell that story. So when they go make the case to their executive or telling their organization on why you should believe in customer experience, they have these stories in their pockets from the yeah. case studies that they read. Um, and this is also where our peer exchanges come in, in handy too because a lot of our members will talk to um, a, another member from an organization and use that as ammunition to go into their executive team and say, I know X company is doing this and this is why we should do it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, think about an Uber um, feature that's permeating. The, the tracking of the car as it's coming to you. Then there was the tracking of the baggage in the airline industry. Now they're in the cable and internet industry. They're uh, rolling out tracking your technician. So I, I take your point, right? It's suddenly this feature because people see that it's possible. They come to expect it and demand it and, and these different industries start to adopt it. So that's a, that's a good example. So we've talked about um, how they use uh, case studies and the how-to reports. And you mentioned at the top that they actually, there's this category of future-looking reports too. So where where are those handy? I mean, is it just to keep pushing the, the ball out further? Like, you know, what's the next um, car tracking feature? Like, you know, that, that I said they were all adopting from Uber. Or is, there, is it just that kind of mindset where they use the future-looking reports for? I think so. I think it's also to, to sh you know, again, kind of show off to their colleagues hmm. that they know what's coming. Hmm. And, Making them smarter. Are, right. They're yeah. informed. Um, so, for example, the predictions report that Rick and Deanna wrote, we actually did a, a call with our whole membership with Rick, and he went through those predictions and, and had you know a bit more of a dialogue with the members to, to see how did these specific predictions apply to you know, our membership and yeah. the things that they're going through. Uh, for example, things like, you know, the CMO is going to own customer experience and, you know, what does that mean for members of our council? Yeah, yeah, definitely seeing that as well. They're pushing into uh, the space. Okay, great. Well, any other sort of uh, big reports that you find yourselves sending to members over and over again? Yeah, I would say the digital predictions report of 2016 mm. because, as Adele said, many of our members are not only trying to think about, you know, what's what's on the roadmap for a year down the road, but three to five years down the yeah. road, maybe even 10. So the digital predictions report talks a lot about personalization. And we think about how to f engage with your customer down the road, how to get to know them uh, and engage with them in the way that they're looking to engage with you. So that report has been key to a lot of the a lot of conversations that we've been having with members lately and looking at what types of technologies do we need, what type of data should we be collecting to be able to create a personalized experience for our customers. Yeah. And there's some great examples in that report. I mean, like the, you know, the Gap and Birchbox teaming up where you could go into a Gap store and, mm -hmm. you know, pick your own Birchbox. Just, you know, even if even if we have members, who, you know, who aren't in retail, that kind of example could give them a good idea for what they could be doing. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, just from the standpoint of this, here's this company that feels like it's a competitor and suddenly they're partnering with the Gap, right? And, you know, the Gap's got its own digital presence, but suddenly they're trying to extend, you know, um, with, with a digital only partner who needs a physical presence. That's a great example of sort of recasting who's your competitor and who, who's a potential partner and, and how you extend your, your brand or where, where, you, uh, where you can reach customers. 
Um, okay, great. Well, well, thank you for joining us again on CXCast. We appreciate it. And um, listeners, we'll post uh, links to some of those reports that Adele and Amanda were referencing. Um, generally speaking, though, how-to reports, case studies, and the future-looking ones are where uh, the CX Council members are most interested or we're sending them the most links to. So thank you both for joining us. Listeners, thank you for tuning in again. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this week's CX Cast. We'll post links to the reports we mentioned in the show notes for this podcast. And if you have questions or suggestions, please contact me at s-s-t-e-r-n at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perception is your CX reality.